from our epistle reading. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I recall when I was a bit younger feeling kind of bad that I didn't, I didn't have a really cool conversion story. Maybe like some of you, I was raised in a church environment which placed a high value on making a decision for Christ, or praying the sinner's prayer, or I once was lost, but now I'm found. Now to be clear, I think in and of themselves, those things are all great. Uh, it's just a narrative that doesn't always fit everyone and didn't fit me. Sometimes I wished I could have talked about like the horrible life I had lived, that all the drugs and the crime, and all the horrible things that I had done all before the age of six. <laughs> which by that point I'd probably prayed the, the, the sinner's prayer about a dozen times. So here's a little brief comment on the intersection of theology and, and sociology about why I think there's an emphasis in evangelicalism about having a dramatic conversion narrative. And then I want to get into the text for the day to show what I think is a more helpful way of thinking about conversion. And so what I want to say is I, I think that, the, that an emphasis on a, a single event kind of conversion in Christianity it's an example of taking a theological principle, a key theological idea, and applying it to a specific context, but then reifying that context back into the principle it's supposed to then apply to all contexts. And the principle, the main idea, I think, is that each human needs to be converted. That is, each human needs to turn from an old way of living to a new way of living. The old way is the way marked by sin and, and self-focus, this is the path that humanity was put on by our first parents in the fall. Whereas the new way is the way marked by love of God and love for neighbor, an others-focused way. And this is the path that Jesus, the second Adam, has shown us to walk in his teachings and in his example. St. Paul characterizes this in 2 Corinthians by saying, The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And he goes on, This means that anyone who's in Christ, anyone who follows and obeys Christ, has become a new creation. And in certain contexts, there is a single soul moment where this initially takes place. And for those in a certain context, perhaps adults who've lived a rather dark life, this can take on a dramatic flavor to it. But then that specific context has, I think, erringly been universalized to prescribe that dramatic flavor to all Christians. And again, to be fair, an emphasis on a once-for-all or a dramatic conversion makes some sense given the histor historical context of like 20th century evangelicalism coming in the wave of, of revivalism. Uh, revivalistic missions like Billy Graham's and D.L. Moody's and others, even reaching back to the American First and Second Great Awakenings, emphasized the radical conversion to Christ that was necessary for following Paul's description of becoming a new creation. And for those who needed a radical conversion, then this was the conversion that God provided. Well, what followed was uh, the thought that this single event, radical or dramatic conversion, had to characterize all Christians. But that, I think, is a bit of an error, and it obscures the principle. It obscures the theological idea about conversion, taking uh, the foundation and turning it into something that ought not be. Because what I think is that the idea of conversion to Christ is not only to be taken as a one-time event, but rather, conversion to Christ is a motif that ought to characterize all times. Now, I think we have two stories in our reading today that sort of illustrate and flesh out this idea of conversion as archetype, conversion as model, that ought to characterize every moment of the Christian life. 
And so we begin with our Old Testament lesson from 1 Samuel 3. Uh, the story might be familiar, uh, even as we pick it up here today after the prologue to the story. Samuel, if, if you recall, uh, was the son of the woman Hannah, who had prayed for years to have a child. And she told God that if she did, she had a, if she had a child, she would dedicate that child to the service of God. So when she had a son, when her and her husband Elkanah had a son, she put him into the service in the temple, which is where we pick up the story with this young boy in our reading today. Now, as we heard, Samuel's lying down in the temple one night, preparing to go to sleep, when God calls out to him. Samuel assumes it was Eli, the high priest, which is a fair assumption, that's the only other person around, or so Samuel thought. And we follow their exchanges until Eli realizes that it might be God who is calling out to Samuel. So Eli instructs Samuel to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. At which point then God does speak to Samuel and, and issues this warning to, to Samuel about Eli's sons. Now for us, I think this story can serve as kind of a model for us, uh, specifically God's call of Samuel and Samuel's posture towards God serves as an archetype of God's call to all of us and the posture that we ought to have to God in every moment. And there is even a bit of a conversion motif here, an old life, new life motif with the boy Samuel. Verse 7 uh, says this, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Which then is, is bookended with the end of the narrative in verse 19, which says that Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So now Samuel here didn't lead a, a, a life of corruption or wickedness up to this point in his young life, but this old, new bifurcation still applied to him. So too, then, I think, with us. By us taking an open posture to God, an openness to God to say, here I am, I'm listening. Speak, for your servant is listening. We then turn from the old, self-focused path to the new, God-focused path to which God calls. Moreover, even in this story, um, what Paul calls the old way of living is exemplified by Eli's sons. And we don't hear much about their exploits here in this chapter, but, but in the previous chapter, we read about just how wicked these guys were. Uh, they, were uh, they were working in the, in the temple as servants to, to their father Eli, but they were stealing from the people who were bringing sacrifices. They were treating the people with contempt. They were being self-focused and, and selfish priests who took advantage of their roles as leaders in the temple to gratify and satisfy themselves. They were examples of living the old way, not the new. And God called Samuel away from a life like that. He warned Samuel by means of his warning to Eli of the destruction of his family. But this message to Eli through Samuel, in that God also invited Samuel to a kind of conversion, an invitation to a new life juxtaposed against this old life, a new life of following God, serving God in God's kingdom. We might see a similar pattern in our story from St. John's Gospel about the calling of some of the first disciples. What do we notice here? Like with Samuel, one of the underlying motifs at first is a bit of confusion. When Philip tells Nathanael that the Savior of Israel has come and that it's Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth, Nathanael retorts with, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's not until Nathanael meets Jesus and Jesus offers a window into who he is that the penny drops, so to speak, and Nathaniel calls Jesus the Son of God, the King of Israel. And this, to my mind, is also a kind of conversion, a conversion from confusion and doubt and uncertainty about who Jesus is 
to a conviction that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, the teacher whom Nathanael would then follow. So what I want to say is that these callings to conversion are archetypes. They're, they're models. They're examples for us Christians to follow, not as one-and-done models, single events, but as examples for us to follow, in fact, every single day and every single moment. These narratives describe not just one moment in a life, but indeed every moment of our lives. The whole of our lives are to be patterned on this model, a pattern of conversion, on turning, continually turning away from the old and continually turning toward the new way of life. It's in this context, the context of seeing conversion as an every moment phenomenon, that I think we can understand the instructions about ethics that St. Paul offers to the Corinthian church in our epistle reading. These aren't just a list of rules that Paul is laying out in order to thwart the Corinthian self-expression. Rather, these guidelines come in the context of describing the implications of the gospel, the implications of what living a new life following the teachings of Christ will entail. If one's going to follow the examples of Samuel and Nathaniel and say to Jesus Christ, you are the Son of God, and here I am, I'm listening, then this, this new way of life is going to look very different from the old way of life. And Paul conveys this at first uh, by listing various kinds of sins as examples of the ways the Corinthians had lived in the old life, but didn't have to anymore. Paul's saying, in a sense, my paraphrase here, these sins are old ways of living. You don't have to live that way. Adultery, that's the old way. Homosexuality, that's the old way. Stealing, that's the old way. Drunkenness, that's the old way. But you don't have to live the old way. You Christians are following Jesus Christ. You are living a new way, the way of the kingdom of God. And how about we connect this to our thoughts about conversions? Well, I think for most people, uh, for the most part, people don't just uh, tend to flee a particular sin and then be done with it. I doubt many people would say, well, one time I sinned, but then I just stopped, and I've never done so since. Rather, turning from sin and turning toward Christ is something we have to do all the time. And in fact, we confess our sins every single week in our Sunday liturgy. We confess our sins every single day in our prayers. The confession of sin is not something one does once in their lives or even once a year. But rather, every week, every day, and I'm contending, every moment needs to be saturated with turning away from the sin that's the impetus for our confessions. Now, clearly, if one has never done this, one has to do it a first time with an initial confession of sin, uh, an initial conversion to Christ. But our need to convert doesn't end with that first conversion. Rather, the posture of Samuel, the, the exclamation of Nathaniel, needs to pervade our embrace of a new life as followers of God. But more than, than just followers, actually, our, Paul goes on here to say that our daily conversion to Christ makes us holy. That is the very special possession of God. Verse 11 again, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Washed, sanctified, justified, this is all language that indicates that the followers of Christ have been converted from belonging to themselves to now belonging to God. And this, I think, for the Christian, makes the sexual sins Paul discusses all the more incomprehensible. Your body is not meant for sexual immorality, Paul says in verse 13, but your body is for God. Our bodies are not for our own individual expression or for our own individual satisfaction. That's the old way. Your bodies are holy. 
This is the new way. Your bodies are as holy as the temple, for they have become the very dwelling place of the almighty God of the universe. And this is a high calling. This is a radical conversion. The old way is to see one's body as one's own tool for one's own self-gratification, something Eli's sons were being condemned for. The calling to conversion entails that this invitation to become a dwelling place for God. And this is what we're daily signing on to when we follow the examples of Samuel and Nathaniel and say to God, here I am, I'm listening. I'd like to end with a brief coda from our psalm and bring in all four readings for this morning. Because I, I think it's so hard in our present culture to hear a, a, a message or a call like, turn from sin and be converted to Christ as anything other than a restriction on our freedoms, a total killjoy, a, a bummer. To many, a turn from sin means you can't have any fun. But our psalmist clearly does not have this perspective. In fact, our psalm this morning expresses great delight in living the converted life a life in alignment with God's teaching. The psalmist talks about looking upon God in the holy place, which of course we just learned is even within our own selves, where God's power and glory is beheld. And the psalmist exclaims that God's loving kindness is better than life itself. Rather than denigrating the self or thwarting our self-expression, the psalmist cries out that the way of God, the new life, is full of deep satisfaction. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And that might seem a little bit gross, but um, the idea is, is that living the new converted life is as satisfying as eating the most delicious piece of food you could possibly imagine. The psalmist goes on, My mouth praises you with joyful lips. Under the shadow of your wings will I rejoice. This new life for the psalmist is far more satisfying, far more joyful than anything the old life could offer. So perhaps if someone were to ask you, uh, so when were you converted? When did you turn to follow Jesus? I'm suggesting the proper response would be, right now. <laughs> this moment, right here, is a moment in which I turn from myself to answer the call to follow Jesus. Like Samuel hearing the call of God or Nathaniel recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God, this is a moment when I hear the call of God and say, here I am, I'm listening. By the grace of God, the Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God, I, at this present moment, am converted to following Christ. Let me conclude with uh, praying again our colic for the week, which asks for grace from God to be converted to know, worship, and obey Jesus Christ as a sign of walking in light of the new life. Let's pray. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen.